0: Welcome to Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now.
1: Welcome back. Welcome back to Star Talk. I'm here with Eugene Merman. Claudio Doherty, uh, Janet Varney, who started Sketchfest. We're in uh, uh, San Francisco for the 16th annual Sketchfest. And our science uh, uh, advocate, science activist uh, this week is Ariel Waldman. And so she's talking about uh, how we are going to hack our way into the future. We're going to hack our way into space exploration. And you think that people who show up at Science Hack Day, for example, are going to do this. It's going to be like citizen science.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So through Science Hack Day, we have people who are artists and technologists and scientists coming together to see what they can rapidly prototype how over do a weekend. I, how do
1: I find out about Science Hack Day? Uh,
2: sciencehackday.org. Whoa! Whoa! Yeah, uh, you can. Anyone can create a Science Hack Day in their city, uh, and there, we are now in 25 countries. I'm the global director for Science Hack Day, and so I happily help people create them. Global in their cities.
1: director, all yeah. right, people. <laughs>
2: 25 countries, uh, and uh, yeah, it's just awesome, because it's really about growing budding science enthusiast communities, but also getting scientists to learn new things as well, getting them to prototype with Arduinos and uh, design and and a lot of things that maybe they don't have experience with.
1: So what do people do? They bring stuff to Science Hack Day. They bring an Arduino. Bring your own copper.
3: (laughs)
2: Yeah, no, it it all takes place over a weekend, and people bring their own materials. They organically form teams. Uh, You know, you get biologists teaming up with rocket scientists, teaming up with marketers, teaming up with artists to create weird, you know, things. And sometimes they don't know, you know, what exactly they're creating until after it's been created. Uh, My my favorite story, all time story with Science Hack Day, is someone who wanted to create a device that would detect when he needed to shave. Uh, so like what? A device that would detect when this guy needed to shave. So it was like a beard detector.
0: And and like a mirror was out of the question.
2: <laughs> I would use, What
1: about the back yeah, of your it hand? It was a mirror. It, 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 it. <laughs> is.
2: This, this is what I love about it. So it's like I have no idea what this had to do with science, but this guy took this USB microscope and he held it up to his face and he wrote some basic you know uh, code and used an open computer vision library so it could see the stubble on his face and draw lines around the stubble on his face and tell him when he needed to shave. Uh, And I was like, well, this is amusing, but I'm not really sure where this is going, but sitting in the audience and seeing this this hack was a particle physicist, and when the particle physicist saw this hack, he said to himself, wow, it's actually a genius way for how to detect cosmic rays in a cloud chamber, which, you know, I'm sure you can all relate to. Uh. but, you know, follow, following Science Hack Day, this particle physicist ended up creating this multi-year research program around detecting cosmic rays in a cloud chamber based on the original code someone used to detect whether or not he needed to shave. That's amazing. That's
1: pretty cool. That's pretty cool.
2: That's
4: like, that's like the scene in a movie that, ma- that you get mad at where you're like, he didn't solve the mer- just because he saw the person doing the thing and then, oh, somehow that reminded him of his <laughs> thing that he had to solve that's what that, that's a real thing yeah that really happened in life I feel yep. really bad about being critical of all those movies
0: yeah uh, a lot of movies are much more realistic right now.
1: <laughs> so uh then I'm seeing here we have the uh strawberry DNA cocktail
2: the dnachry yeah
1: dna this is where you extract strawberry DNA?
2: Yeah, so uh, extracting DNA is surprisingly simple, but sometimes it requires using materials that aren't entirely edible. So someone wanted to create an entirely edible way of extracting strawberry DNA, and so they created literally a DNAchery. And so you can actually see in this cocktail the long polymers of DNA clumping together as it extracts it, and you can drink it. Um, And the recipe is up on Instructables, but it tastes absolutely disgusting, so I don't actually Re- recommend it?
1: No, because that's traditionally done in science education we use soap, dish soap. Yeah. And then uh, I don't know how much time you spent with that. You don't normally drink that. Yet. So, <laughs> yeah.
0: So Yeah. Uh, uh, what can the, you do with dish soap other than drink it?
1: <laughs> you can uh, mash strawberries with it uh-huh. and then mix some it works better with cold alcohol. Uh-huh. I'll have to tell you. <laughs> and then uh, then you, the, this then these white strands will form this little pool, and you can twist up your uh, strawberry DNA.
4: Why strawberries? Like,
1: did they try? It's just, it's just accessible. It hmm. works, is what I would say. And when
0: you do that, you're like, now I have strawberry DNA, or is then you're like, now I have the... the strawberry whatever. DNA, oh, okay. and then you
1: go, that's cool. Yes. Okay. Wow. Agreed. Yeah, okay, yeah. Just but checking. somebody must have found a way to substitute something for the soap.
2: Yes. So, so yeah, the, I haven't looked at the recipe, actually, for a few years now, but it's still up on in, 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 Instructables. The so important thing is it still it. tastes bad. It's still, yeah, yeah. yeah. Worse than soap. It, oh, it's <laughs> highly alcoholic. Highly <laughs> alcoholic.
0: This is a lot of supporters.
2: <laughs> uh,
4: you <laughs> can find cool. other
0: ways to hook up than this hack
4: day.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you run around, you set up the hack days. How much do that... How much of your time does that take?
2: So I work on Science Hack Day year-round, but uh, I work on a lot of different projects uh, throughout the year as well. So there's never really not a time that I'm working on Science Hack Day, but uh, I, I am always bouncing around between a lot of different interesting things. When's the next one? So the next Science Hack Day in San Francisco is going to be in September or October, um, but about 20 events or so happen around the world every year. So on the Science Hack Day website, you can go and see when the next one in your city is. And if there isn't one, you can go create one.
0: And can you just go and yeah, attend? Yeah, that's and, my question. Like, I don't know that I'd be able to hack something, but no, I'd love to So go. you
2: don't need any experience in science or hacking to attend a do Science Hack Day. Do you have hack to Day. look like a hacker? Like, no. do you need, like, a long leather coat or maybe... <laughs> dreadlocks even though you're white or I, yeah. for example. no no it's 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 for all ages all all backgrounds you don't need any experience you know i'm a perfect example you know i'm not a programmer i'm not a scientist uh but i participate in these science hack days and i create awesome stuff it's really just about collaborating and prototyping things to whatever fidelity level you can even if it's cardboard
4: do you, is there a uh a sort of you said that people organically kind of form teams. Is there a sort of good-natured competitiveness that also arises? That it may be a healthy competitiveness, like, or is it just everybody sort of celebrating even if they're off doing their own thing and then bring it back together to show? What I think done? that's
2: one of the things that makes Science Hack Day really unique. Is that it is actually highly collaborative, and it, you know, a lot of hackathons I think are very intimidating for people because it's seen as you need to have certain skills, and yeah, it's about competing for a cash prize. And Science Hack Day, it, you know, we don't have. Cash cash prizes. It's really just about celebrating and working on things. A lot of people join multiple teams, so you might have people who are working on three or four teams nice. throughout the, the weekend. So um, that's one of the things that definitely sets it apart from, I guess, a lot of the, the typical hackathons. Um, it's really about all backgrounds and collaboration. Nice.
1: Do you pay a fee?
2: No, it's all free. And all the, all the food is provided for free, thanks sure. to sponsors.
1: How do you fund this? Do you, uh, you
0: write grants kind of thing?
2: Uh, occasionally I get grants, um, sponsors. Each city has to look for uh, their own sponsors, um, and... What's they, the worst company you've ever gotten? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I mean, we, we, get, uh, we, um, we look for sponsors, you know, from the design and technology and science industries, um, and really the majority of the sponsorship money uh, goes to all of the food, because these are all volunteer-run. So it's volunteer-run, a free event to attend, Food is provided for free, so you don't have to worry about going and getting is food. Is it mainly like copper and what is <laughs> <everybody's> the food? <laughs> you don't have to check the toilets, I guess, but. <laughs> I uh, will! <laughs>
1: and there's algae in bags. Yes,
2: algae <laughs> in bags. These crackers. Yeah. Yeah. crackers are too fast to eat! <laughs> we're throwing glitter on everything, and yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: All right, all right, now, hang on now. You are a space activist, right? And you have written a book. What's It Like in Space by Ariel Waldman. And what you did is interview a bunch of people who've flown in space, yeah? Yeah. And uh, what did you learn about it?
2: You know, the thing that I loved the most, so I interviewed a dozen astronauts for the book, and then I also researched historical interviews with astronauts. And the thing that I loved is that, you know, space exploration is very slowly becoming more accessible, but extremely slowly. And there's often this this sort of emphasis on the early astronauts and and what Astronauts are typically like and what they look like and what they sound like. i Mean and, our
0: dudes. Yeah. They're, <laughs> they're a bunch of cads.
2: Yeah. And and the thing I loved the most was just getting to hear that not everyone has the same sort of experience in space. Not everyone is, you know, saying, oh, it was the best thing ever. Some people are talking about how, you know, they have to work on managing their mood a lot day to day. and Managing
1: people, their mood.
2: Yeah. If you're on you're a saying long duration, you're angry flight.
1: and miserable.
2: I'm saying that, you know, I talked to people who said, you know when you're in space for a long time that's really when you're at home and you're relaxed and it's great and then I talked to other people who said you know long duration spaceflight I have to worry about you know really focusing on not letting my mood drop and not you know getting down and not getting frustrated and and I really prefer shorter duration uh, space flights and this is what I sort of loved is that there's no one-size-fits-all to space exploration and I think the more we can do that the more we can really um, show how space exploration is for everyone and you don't have to fit into a certain mold
4: I love that because I do feel like most of us are like oh, I'm not the kind of person who could ever do that, you know. And
1: I love yeah. the idea of but three
0: days making in that space nonsense. sounds nice. Yeah, like, <laughs> three weeks prize. sounds like no. I get it.
1: Yeah. Second prize, six days in space. Yeah. So <laughs> older reference. So, nice. Did you, uh, Ariel? Did you ever want to go in space?
2: You know, I get asked that question all the time. Well,
1: here's another time. Uh,
2: yeah, it's. Honestly, for me, only speaking for myself, it's something that as I learn more about it, I'm, I'm not so sure. I, I might be okay with you know, doing a suborbital flight or something like that, but spending a lot of time in space often just sounds like a camping trip from hell.
1: <laughs> what's, what's hellish about it?
2: I, it's you know you're you're up there with a set number of people and you know you're dealing with toilet systems that aren't really that elegant and you know you're you're dealing with a lot of health issues also that aren't very elegant. You're know, throwing What's up. What's a health
0: issue? Throwing up.
2: Yeah, throwing up and you know meaning and,
0: it's just a bunch of people in space pooping on each other and well, throwing up
2: because <laughs> yeah. that
0: has been left out from maybe, many of uh, the maybe not,
2: <laughs> Well, so maybe not on each other, but maybe even on yourself because for instance, when you go to like throw up in space, if you just throw up. Up into a bag, guess what? That barf is going to bounce back into your face, because you're in space, so you always need to carry a towel around with you so that you don't barf on yourself by accident while it's...
0: Should <laughs> we get longer bags <laughs> <laughs> to give a little more time to close? <laughs> you just you can't. Space. Yeah. You're welcome, Mike Messamino. <laughs> That's just the kind of question space that has pack. to be figured out. Right? Yeah,
2: and those those are some of the stories that I explore I can't in this wait box. to invent the <laughs> longest
0: space barf bag.
2: <laughs> I feel like I was in. Was did I when I went
4: to the like Cape Canaveral and that and that part of the museum is this whole exhibit that sort of explains that they're really still hoping someone will come up with this great space hack for the toilet. Eugene did right? it. Like We're still looking, where are you, person <laughs> who's gonna long... solve all our problems? <laughs> Eugene Merman,
2: you've been right here the whole time. I mean, I... A longer toilet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's better than the early days because one, one of the stories that I, I cataloged in the book that always just makes me laugh is that in the early days, you, know, you didn't have space toilets, That you know, it, was, it was all men and all they had were, you know, these these condom catheters to, to pee into in their spacesuits. And all of their spacesuits were leaking. So they were spending all this time looking into, like, what's wrong with the spacesuits? And... When
0: a spacesuit leaks, why doesn't the person die?
2: <laughs> because, well, because... It's They're like,
0: inside the... the
2: well, it, it's not, like, going up into their face, but it's in their sort of bo- body, I guess,
0: Oh it's it's internally leaking. Inside
2: the space so, suit. So like not you're externally. getting yeah no it's not externally. It's like inside the spacesuit, it was like leaking urine and so they were trying to figure out I think out Trump how- would love space
0: <laughs> NASA is safe.
2: Wow. But, but, you know, they were trying to figure out in these spacesuits, you know, what was wrong with the design. And it was the early days of space exploration with these, like, men. And uh, what happened, they discovered, was when the guys were going to their doctors and trying to uh, get sized for everything, the doctor would say, well, what size condom catheter do you need? And they all said, large. That is, that is awesome. That is a true. That is story. an awesome piece of
4: information.
0: <laughs> if they were just a little more honest, yeah. they wouldn't have floated around in their own pee. <laughs> I told you they were cads.
2: <laughs> uh,
0: that seems like a solvable problem, though.
2: Well, I mean, it was once they discovered what, what the problem was, is you know. They, they didn't have as much, I guess, double checking on what the astronauts were telling the doctors, is, is, is one God, of the things. You issues. get the
1: impression the doctors were checking everything, wink, wink.
2: Yeah. I, well, except for the wink, wink, okay. so.
1: Well, they were all, there a bunch of guys, you know, it's locker room talk. Yeah, a bunch of guys. What? You people, I am just shocked. <laughs> So what else you had uh, in the book, you, you're sneezing, sneezing in space, difficult.
2: Yeah, you've got you've to aim down while you're in a spacewalk uh, when you sneeze, because if you don't, you could end up act- accidentally blinding yourself from uh, obscuring your helmet. And if it gets in your eyes, you, your hands are in a suit. You can't you know, just open your helmet and clear no out your eyes. There's no
0: windshield wiper on the inside.
2: Uh, Well, so they're trained. If you feel a sneeze coming on, like aim down so that you sneeze into essentially your chest uh, and not, uh, you know, uh, actually uh, blind yourself. Yeah. Yeah.
1: No, I've worn a spacesuit on the TV, and uh, they have a nose, they have a nose scratcher inside the helmet, and uh, it is there's it's tricky, you know. And this, and uh, by the way, for those of you just all hot to go to Mars, well, I'm going to go outside. You're gonna be in a spacesuit. You're gonna be in another dome just outside of the dome that you're in, and apparently you can't even sneeze properly. So it's gonna be... Inconvenient? Yes. But so, will but you
2: be soaked in your own urine?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, there's gravity soaked. on
0: Mars, so it'll be in your ankle. Can I change my, I'd spend three days into space to like one or two?
2: <laughs> there, there's diapers nowadays, there's diapers. Oh, cool. Oh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, back to three.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Dignity intact. <text. laughs>
0: Diapers. So uh,
1: the whole thing sounds. You looked into it. Were you surprised by these uh, troubling stories or were you. I, you saw it coming?
2: I, well, I mean, I, I love these stories. and I, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I created the book is because, you know, it, it's meant to document, I guess, the stories that astronauts t- tell you over. Uh, a cup of coffee or, or, or a glass of a beer or something you know it, it, it's the stories that are kind of more embarrassing and awkward and silly and fun um, but, but you know sometimes also awe-inspiring as well and, and to me I, I wanted to sort of cut past both the romanticism of space and, and the mundane uh, side of space and, and, and go into sort of more the silly stories that you tell when, when you get back from space and, and you know are just hanging out with friends.
1: So, what are the mundane stories from space? Uh, you didn't include any. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, you know, I think the mundane stories are just kind of, I mean, there's stories about how astronauts give each other privacy, and, you know, you don't have uh, doorknobs in space, you have, you know, uh, or anything like that. So, you can't really put like a sock over a doorknob to say, you know, give me some privacy, you know, I'm getting dressed. None of that other business. Uh, but do they you know, just
0: turn around well, constantly?
2: N- well, it's it's so you know uh, some space crews have uh, been able to devise like okay when there's a towel over the airlock that means you know give me some privacy. You know it's, there's stories like that which are you know.
1: Do they take ties like you know from their
0: college or something? <laughs> are we just sending space perverts? <laughs>
2: Well, you know, sometimes you're in situations where, uh, or they often on the. need to jerk off. Sir. No, no, and in the International Space Station. A lot of times, because you know, because because diversity isn't what it should be on the International Space Station just yet. A lot of times, there will be only one woman crew member when there's a bunch of guys, and so you know, they want to be able to figure out how to give each other privacy and not to not to be a creep. Give each other what? Privacy. Privacy.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and not to be a creep.
2: Not to be a creep. Underline, underline. Yeah.
0: That seems very reasonable. Yeah. And they do it by all turning around or putting towels on. So, each
2: other. so yeah, one, one crew said, "Okay, we're put. Whenever you see a towel over the airlock, that's you know that means like you know don't go into this section. You know, someone's changing or something."
1: It's a big thing though, right? But I guess that they all end up in the same places at, this, at the same times, maybe.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, it, it, this is what I meant by the mundane stories. It's just like figuring out socially how to, you know, interact with one another to sort of respect each other's space and respect each other's boundaries as needed. But you would go on suborbital, you said, right? Well, you know, I think it's be just because in orbit, just yeah, you, up you go up, you go into space, you're up there for six minutes or so, you come back down, you don't have to deal with a lot of the health issues that some of the, the astronauts face with, you know, uh, ocular issues or... Their
1: eyeballs change or, shape, or, right? Uh, yeah, right. And, go and on. Muscles. Wait, what
2: happens?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Your eyes change shape with of of the enough zero gravity. Yeah.
2: To you know. what long? shape? So uh, so a lot of astronauts who go into space for a long duration um, will come back. Come and back with rhombus eyes. They'll come back and they'll, 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 they'll need a, a prescription. Uh, and, uh, uh, they'll need glasses for the rest of their lives, and they went up with perfect vision. And so they're still trying to figure out why that happens and why it only happens to some people and not others. Um, and it's something that people take very seriously um, because it can affect some people in in a more... Uh, Extreme way than others, but you know there's that and then there's losing muscle and there's losing bone density and you know It's a a big you know health consideration to go into space Let me ask you this
1: is it really like a young person's game space exploration?
2: I don't think so
0: yeah, tell it to Space Cowboys.
2: Well, you know, well, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that movie. Uh, yes, the
2: yeah. movie. Yes, so, the movie where some, they. Some of this is actually supported by science. Um, you know, people who have less of a uh, of a I guess radiation cancer risk are people who are older. So. Uh, men over 55 um, have some of the lowest uh, uh, cancer radiation risks when you're thinking about sending people into space for a long time. So if you were to only look at, you know, the, the data, then you would say, okay, we want to send people over 55 into space. Um, I got but, a shot again. Yeah. <laughs> no, I
1: applied. I applied four times. But what, when NASA started, what was the average age of people who worked there? It was Twenty-six. Really... 26 and then what's the average age of people work at uh, SpaceX?
2: I think it was late 20s. maybe. Yeah, I think it's
1: 27. Yeah, and uh, I've been there and it, the people are quite young and they are enthusiastic man because just Space just gets people excited. People just love it. Um, and you guys love space, right? That's why you're at Star Talk. That's why we're having the times of our lives and who knows what will happen in, uh, in the coming decades. You know, we're going to have more uh, Science Hack Days.
0: We're at over, over two dozen now.
2: Uh, we're over 60 events and, yeah, in 25 countries.
0: Can I guess which countries?
2: Sure. <laughs> so,
1: so if people in the audience want to go to a Science Hack Day, they go to your website? Yeah,
2: go to sciencehackday.org. And, you know, uh, also uh, with NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts, anyone can actually submit a concept to NASA. That opens up yearly around August. You can go to
1: NIACFellows.org dot org yes. And somebody will read it.
2: Yeah. So org. you can uh, go learn how to submit a concept. And, yeah, they'll, you, it's a three-page white paper due in August each year. And... Uh, I think the thing that's really exciting is you can come from, you know, biology or neuroscience or, you know, design or, 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 or sort Could of Can you any come background. from comedy? Yeah. <laughs> can
0: anyone submit?
2: Anyone can submit. So garage hackers, to you know scientists, to people from all different disciplines, to a longer barf bag enthusiasts. Yeah, <laughs> anyone can do exactly. it. Exactly. You've got. A I can't wait to write already. a
0: three-page white paper about the longest barf bag <laughs> in the world. You,
2: <laughs> one word. Per you page. absolutely can. You know, th- this is what I love. Is is you know NIAC Fellow, uh, NIAC and and the niacfellows.org website. It's really about. Um, getting different ideas into the mix at NASA, and so this both helps people outside of NASA actually potentially influence the future direction of NASA, as well as um, getting people within NASA, they can submit if they've had their work overlooked by the larger bureaucracy. So it's really helping make uh, concepts that should be more accessible, um, accessible to NASA.
4: Also, I'm just fast-forwarding to you submitting your three-page barf bag idea. (laughs) Middle page somewhere in the, like, it's so, 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 so so long, etc. But then someone calls you and is like, Eugene Merman, your horrible idea about the long barf bag gave me the information I needed (laughs) to realize how to use a wormhole to travel us through time.
0: Yeah. And space. Yeah. That's what Star Trek brings yeah. to the party, people. I, that sort of innovation thinking. It won't be a barf bag, but I will definitely submit something.
1: <laughs> Fabulous. Fabulous. Thank you all so much. This is the part of our show when we come to the microphones. Uh, And so, please, and ask a question of anyone up here.
0: Preferably to do with... With space and activity (laughs) and 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 inventions and space hacking.
1: Uh, So, uh, Eugene, you go ahead and call on people.
0: Uh, Well, we can start right over here. Um, Yes, my question was for Ariel. So, the uh, shaving device thing was an accident, but what was... The thing you saw at um, a hack fest that really like impressed you or struck you as particularly unique, like what was your favorite
2: I mean, I think a lot of times uh, they are things like the beard detector that where uh, i don 't really know what they're good for until other people sort of join in. So one of the weirdest hacks we had was um, a a mask called Synesthesia that tried to simulate a type of synesthesia. And it was just a really creepy looking mask. And, And what it did was like, as you navigated different parts of the room with this mask on, different parts of your face would start vibrating depending on how light and dark the room was. So you could sort of navigate the room through vibration. And you know, the team who did it did it for fun. It was a molecular biologist and a journalist and a few other people teaming up. And but afterwards, well, sure. yeah, yeah. Well, this is this is what I mean. Like all different people, you know, from backgrounds, get together. And, but following the the event, um, a, a group of researchers reached out because they were developing a suit for um, toddlers who had experienced extreme brain damage um, and trying to sort of use body suits to help these toddlers learn how to crawl in sort of unique ways. And so they actually wanted to then collaborate with that team as sort of a way of figuring out how to um, encourage toddlers to learn how to crawl um, who otherwise might not be able to. So... I I don't think I I have less stories of someone having an exact idea and it coming to fruition and more um, stories of of people developing things um, just to see what they can create and someone sort of using that as a really divine sort of inspiration for something else. Excellent. Thank you. Are you going to
1: go to uh, Science Hack Day? uh,
2: I plan on it and I was going to tell you that
0: your socks are dope. Thank (laughs) you. (laughs) (laughs) They
1: were a gift. These socks are dope.
2: Thank you. If you you. or anyone else wants an early invite to Science Hack Day when when we announce, just uh, email me. I'm very findable on the interwebs, so uh, I will give you an early invite. Nice.
3: Hey guys, Uh, my name is Nick. It's not necessarily a science question, but. A little closer to the microphone. Okay. There we are. are. Are we here? All right, cool. So, like, we're. We're having this kind of convergence with like pulp culture and science where we're both exploring AI. Like we have like Westworld this year that explores AI in like a pleasure sense and other ways that I won't spoil the show for you. And then we have like Google, like with like driverless cars and like Uber is kind of doing the same thing. My question for you guys is, what are the applications of AI that you feel like these things are not questioning or the questions they're not asking?
1: Uh, I just do some more about me. Uh, the, there's going to be a Netflix show coming out called Bill Nye Saves the World.
4: Nice.
1: And, uh, all the Netflix. Does anybody work for Netflix? They're very secretive. <laughs> right on. They're very secretive. They don't tell you who watches or how many people or stuff. Yeah. So all they're saying is spring. That's the date spring, and we've shot 13 of them, and one of them is about artificial intelligence. So we had uh, these, what you would call, panel of experts. And the big thing is that artificial intelligence is, uh, anytime you have a device or a system that takes the past and then makes decisions for you in the future, that's what people are calling artificial intelligence. So driving a car, for example, but I think it'll be... Almost everything will have this anticipatory quality. Does anybody here have a Nest brand thermostat? Yeah, so you this know? is where it uses the past to change what it does in the future. I'm not saying it's all about thermostats, but I think that'll become <laughs> more and more... Well, it's kind of an obvious idea where people will look back. You mean you had to get up and build a fire to, to keep warm? A yeah. and,
0: and bunch back. of assholes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, I think it'll be fine, but what we want... Uh, from my science education world is to have people who are comfortable with computers and computer code and keeping track of things. What's your business, sir?
3: My business? Yeah, I don't necessarily have a business. Uh (laughs) Well, good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Just for the good old days, I want to start with this. Bill Nye, the science guy. Bill Nye, the science guy. Bill Bill, 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 Bill. Thank you. Yes. Oh man, that show! Holy cow, it inspired me so much. Well, I, no, love sure you, I love you, man. Uh, right on. Uh, so you guys are uh, basically doing one of the coolest things possible right now, which is science communication. Uh, all of you, and you know, putting on the festival itself is again art and bringing science communication here. I'm sure we're, that's why we're all here, but. Um, I also do, I host a science comedy show myself called Eureka, but I really wanted to ask you guys this question it's, a, it's part of Sketchfest but um, this question is about science communication, how do we bring more science communication and experiential learning, uh, hands-on learning to the world Can't do it <laughs> you.
1: Huh. you go to science hack day, huh. man <laughs> That's what you do, you join the planetary society at planetary.org That's what you do So, uh, you know, what we say all the time is we want science every day in every grade. So there's a big emphasis, for example, on Science Hack Day, where people want uh, hands-on learning outside of the classroom. But what I think we still need, especially in the United States, is hands-on learning in the classroom. Like in many U.S. school systems, you don't get any science until you're in middle school. And that's inappropriate. Everybody who works at NASA got interested in science before they were 10, right? When they were in elementary school. I mean, pretty much. A lot. Yeah. You're not going to, for example, you will not meet a professional baseball player who just turned 18 and thought, I think I'll try this. No, I mean. Maybe turn 12. (laughs) Could be hard. So anyway, what we want to do is get in the formal school curriculum, have science incorporated since you asked. And what I used to say until a couple months ago, I used to say the most important thing you can do about something like that is vote.
2: It's it's still important. But now I'm not so sure. It's still important.
1: So um, uh, vote. Encourage your school systems to have science every day in every grade.
3: Right on. Thank you, keep inspiring. It's changed
0: change the world, people. Hello, so um, two things. Um, you talked about the laser wafer propulsion system to Alpha Centauri. Um, I'm trying to What's so weird about that?
2: Uh, no, no, no,
3: no, nothing weird. Um,
0: can you, do you know anything more about the electromagnetic warp drive that's been being tested, not tested, I'll take this one. <laughs>
2: Thank you, Ariel. Oh, thank you. No, no, thank you. No, you go ahead. It's all you. <laughs> no, I don't know anything about
1: it, but I'll just tell you, when you as soon as you say warp drive... Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, it's this whole idea. When you've got a science fiction show, they're going to show up on planets and everybody's going to speak English, and they're going to have a thing that allows you to dissociate your molecules and go down to the planet, but that's not the same as actually having warp drive. Yeah. And so I saw it, I know, but there's more to it than that. So I don't know anything about that. But for many years, people have talked about nuclear drive, you know, where you explode nuclear weapons behind your spacecraft and push them along. That sounds bad. And it would work, I guess, (laughs) but, you know, you can't even get...
2: I mean, one of the things with the warp drive thing to understand is that it is, in a sense, asking to sort of break physics as we know it through an application. And, you know, this is sort of the difference with the NIAC stuff and the Breakthrough Starshot using lasers as propulsion systems is they're not actually trying to say that physics is broken. They're actually using physics as we know it. Um, and, and with NIAC projects in particular, the the, the two really important things are, um, don't propose something uh, that asks, uh, that asks to change the laws of physics as we know them and then don't submit something that requires a budget that's unrealistic. So, like, as long as I have $2 trillion, I can totally build this awesome spacecraft that gets us to Mars in two days, you know, so things like that. Um, so, the warp drive, I think, you know, I'm always skeptical of things that ask for the laws of physics to be broken in order for an application to work. Um,
1: Why? Why?
2: <laughs> Because I think we need to work on the fundamental research first before we think about the oh, applications.
1: Before we go on, by the way, where would the laser be?
2: I think that's something they're actually prototyping and testing out. So I think they're looking at sort of both what happens when you use space-based and ground-based lasers. And yeah, and what so are you put and one on, to
1: on the moon maybe and shoot it at the spacecraft. And, yeah. So we'll keep, keep you posted on the warp drive.
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay, and and then the second piece, um, you mentioned space. Uh, Astronauts, that's the word I'm looking for. Astronauts controlling their mood on light- long flights. I'm a psychology major. Is there any hope for me being on a mission to Mars as a therapist to keep.
2: <laughs> I mean, I oh, hope that. so. I yeah. hope so. I think that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Why not?
0: <laughs> Thank Stick <you>. with it. <laughs>
1: So uh, on this upcoming Bill Nye Saves the World show, we have artificial intelligence, uh, where the robot coffee maker wants to kill all humans, <laughs> and uh, it's the voice is Neil deGrasse Tyson. So <laughs> turn it up loud. It's funny. It's funny.
3: Uh, Bill, you actually preempted my question a little bit. Um, I have a been... coffee maker. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Terrible copy. (laughs) Quite rude, quite rude. Um, I I read a lot of speculative science fiction, and one of the trilogies that I read this year was, uh, or last year, was The Three-Body Problem.
1: The Three-Body Problem. I
3: also like it. Um, So everybody,
1: The Three-Body Problem is complicated, where you have the sun and the earth, and then you're a spacecraft... How do you keep track of all, of the gravity of all three objects or the moon, <clears throat> and they're all going around each other? It gets there's a lot of uh, math. It's complicated. It was Lagrange, <laughs> right, who worked the three body problem and
3: mm-hmm.
1: the Hamiltonian. But yep. yes, go on, please, sir. Um,
3: <laughs> this question is specifically about a type of propulsion that they um, proposed in the three body problem, which was um, using all of the Earth's nuclear missiles. To explode behind, explode behind a solar sail—or not a solar sail, but a sail—to to to propel a very small package at near light speed. Now, my question is: Do you think that that would work both in getting us to near light speed and also in convincing us to do nuclear disarmament?
1: So, I would say, it doesn't sound like it would work because those missiles were made to fall on other countries. You know, this the expression, ballistic missile. You shoot it up and it falls, ballast, weight. It falls on, the, on your enemy. So they're not really made to go into deep space. And then in getting everybody to shoot his nuclear missile and trusting that it's, that <laughs> it's really going to go into space, it's, it's just probably, I think the political issues might be troublesome. <laughs> And then uh, making a spacecraft durable enough to withstand nuclear explosions behind it is probably of all chilling. our missiles. Yeah, yeah. And now, for those of you who don't know, the uh, Department of Energy in the United States controls much of the nuclear material. Yeah, exactly. And so,
0: uh, <laughs> he I, don't has glasses.
1: Ha- I don't know what's going to happen with the Department of Energy. Uh, I just don't know. Uh, so, no, I would say no. But when it comes to nuclear material to do almost anything, the political problems are generally much harder than the technical ones. I mean, nobody. This is what's. Why don't we have nuclear power plants everywhere? Because there's all these problems with them. And uh, for example, and you know, if you if you start just even a small nuclear war, it's really bad. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, lead on. Lead on, yes, guy in Dallas person. Hello, yes. Um,
0: yes. (laughs) Um, First, I just want to say that you and Dr. Tyson are two of my heroes. Um, I love you, man. (laughs) um, You guys are both brilliant, but much more important than that, you do great and very valuable things with your smarts, so thank you for that. I love you, man. Um, I am studying to teach, and you've been very vocal in... for lack of a better term, the curriculum of creationism in classrooms. Yes. And uh, I just wanted to know, is that is that still a growing movement? Oh, heck yes. Yeah, and um, is it as difficult as I hope it would be to be adding that into our classrooms and history books?
1: What, adding what? Creationism? Creationism, yeah. No, you mean people try to put creationism in classrooms. Right. Yeah. So speaking of the guy that's been hired to run the Department of Energy former governor Rick Perry, he also, if you recall, wanted to uh, abandon the Department of Education. And in general, and this is being recorded, and this will end my career, and so it goes, but (laughs) the reason people want to do that is they want to teach, they don't want to teach evolution in schools. That's sort of what starts that whole thing. That's the whole deal. That's the fundamental idea in all of life science and all biology. They don't want to teach it in schools, and Claudia, we're so happy that you sent Ken Ham from uh, Australia. You're welcome. Yeah. To uh, is anybody from Kentucky, the Commonwealth of Kentucky? Nobody, really. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. No, no, it's really an extraordinary thing this guy was able to do. You know, he's got the he got what's called a tax increment funding scheme, tax increment financing, TIF. So everybody in the Commonwealth of Kentucky pays for his replica of Noah's Ark, which is this huge thing. I've been there. It's just, wow. And so if you're a kid brought up in that culture where people believe that the earth is 6,000 years old. It's more like 7,000,
0: right? Uh, Yeah,
1: yeah, you're right. It's it's twice that.
0: Uh, Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's really hard to overcome. It's, if you're a kid brought up in that, it's really hard to get over it. So this is a fight we got to fight.
2: Yeah. I, I would say to also be sure to support school districts on the local level. So I grew up in Kansas, which is always like every, I don't know, five years or so in headlines for being the most backwards state about, you know, wanting to tr- teach creationism in schools. And I would go to high school um, in a suburb of Kansas City where uh, it's kind of like a, a liberal oasis. But, you know, I I remember back to school night and the teachers all wrote on the blackboards, like we teach evolution and It's sort of like, you know, it, it's ridiculous that it has to come to that, that, you know, teachers, um, on a local level, have to stand up and say, no matter what the Kansas Board of Education says, we're not going to uh, to teach that. We're going to teach evolution. Um, but you know, you know, put pressure on on the federal level, but also you know, support your your local school districts that are against whatever you know the statewide uh, <laughs> committees try to say. Because I think. You'd be surprised on the local level that there are a lot of schools in, in these states that often get bad headlines where they are trying to actively fight it, but they need support.
1: So you pick, Eugene. I can't...
0: No, Claudia, you pick. Claudia, you pick.
2: I think it's this line's turn. <laughs>
0: yeah, It is, Flat well, someone bet. better questions. Ahead, That's okay. Okay, first of all, thank you guys very much for this show and for SketchFest. Um, my question's really for Bill and Ariel, and it's kind of uh, nerdy, sorry. Um, that has wow, no place here. <laughs> yeah, Star
1: Talk, I. You're a Star Talk audience, but and you're nerdy.
0: I, it happens, I guess. Yeah, so weird. So I wonder why we don't use electromagnetic propulsion regularly in uh, launches, spacecraft launches. We
1: in launches. Yeah. We use electromagnetic propulsion for station keeping. You know these, you guys. You can use these big long tethers in deep or high uh, orbits to hold spacecraft up. It's very cool, but you're talking about like a rail gun,
0: basically it, like it, a rail gun. And I know launches still. have actually been conducted with that tech, but I wonder why we don't use it in conjunction with chemical propulsion. Because uh, people it's...
1: talk about it all the time. And then so anyway, this is where you guys you have two railroad tracks, railroad rails, I guess a single track, and you run the ra- and then your spacecraft sits on slides on this track, and you run the right current through it, and it's. Inherently repelled. It's a fabulous physics thing, and so you could shoot it really fast, but it's got to go straight up, and it needs a lot of electricity from electricity co. So I, I, I mean, I guess it's somebody people fooled it. And then the other just wacky thing is to have the fuel on the spacecraft, and then sh- beam microwaves into it to boost it. Whoa! And so. Uh, <laughs> People talk about that all the time, and if you want to solve a problem, getting to low earth orbit would be a great one. So get her done. I think it's just a lot harder than it looks. All right, you guys, this has been a great show. Thank you so much. Let's give it up for Eugene Merman himself, Claudio Doherty from Netflix's Love. Janet Varney from FX is your the worst and IFC's stand against evil. And of course, our heroine for this episode, Ariel Waldman, space activist. I've been your host, Bill Nye. This has been Star Talk. Keep looking up. Let's change the world, people.